Next week is the last week in Psalms. We're going to look at three short Psalms at the very end. It's Psalm 148, 149, 150 next week. And that's kind of how it was written as a finale to the whole book. And so we're going to use that as a finale for our time in Psalms. Since we've been here since February, it's good to end it. And then we'll look at some Advent things together in preparation of Christmas. So uh, this week we're in Psalm chapter 94. You can be turning there. There are 23 verses. Psalm chapter 94. This is really it's a psalm of lament, but there's a several different parts to it, as we'll mention in just a moment. But I think you'll notice as we read through this, there are two distinct parts to Psalm chapter 94. They're kind of broken up 1 through 11 and then 12 through 23. And there's individual sections within that. But uh, the first half, if you will, 1 through 11 are like the, the author's cry for vengeance on Israel's enemies. It's a lament concerning the injustices that are suffered at the hands of the wicked. And then uh, verses 12 through 23 are words of comfort from the psalmist, coming from the idea that God will ultimately protect his people and bring destruction upon evildoers. And so this is a psalm of lament. It's kind of an imprecatory psalm as well, where the psalmist just kind of says, God, avenge the righteous. Go get the bad guys. Repay the evildoers for their wickedness. Judge them according to your righteousness. Um, but there's also hope in this psalm that we'll, we'll see. There's, it doesn't start that way. It, it starts with conflict and, and heartache and suffering in this psalm. But really, as I think about the Christian experience, and I think about the written word of God and the history of God's people, conflict, heartache, suffering, this isn't anything new. For God's people. I was reading and I read a pastor this week said that the Bible was born in conflict. Now not at the, not at, at its inception, um, because that, you know, God created everything and he saw that it was good. Uh, but it didn't take long for mankind to mess that up. Right? And so just kind of some major events that are recorded. Uh, think about those in scripture. Right off the bat, we've got conflict or disobedience in the garden and then they're they're kicked out and it didn't take long after that for there to be the first murder noah the great flood slavery in egypt wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years living under oppressive kings the invasion exile slavery the persecution then in the new testament after christ had gone back into into heaven the persecution of the apostles ultimately their martyrdom right they were killed for their faith. And then the Son of God on the cross, brutally crucified. There's conflict that's recorded in Scripture. So when we're experiencing conflict, when there's stuff going on in our life that doesn't seem to make sense in our own minds, when we're having difficulty, we shouldn't be surprised then that Scripture actually feels like more familiar in those moments. And if you've experienced that kind of thing, you probably understand what I mean. When we're heartbroken and we open God's word and maybe we come to a psalm like this and maybe we glance at verse 18, it just makes sense. We feel that in a way that we maybe don't before. 
a, an article writer for uh, Desiring God wrote this, God doesn't only give us his word to carry us through our trials. He also gives us trials to open our eyes to his word. When opposition comes or plans fall apart or relationships fracture or peace collapses, God's words swell with unusual strength and sweetness. I think as his people, we probably found that to be true. So as we read Psalm 94, I want us to understand that it was written to a group of people who had experienced, and as we know now, they would probably experience suffering again. They had first-hand knowledge of persecution, exile, slavery, death, desperation, heartache, fill in the blank. They experienced it. And as we've covered in other psalms already, it appeared to the author here, and maybe to God's people in different periods, it appeared as though the evil person was winning. The wicked person was getting away scot-free. It looked like that. So the psalmist is writing to a worn-out people. They were weary. And he was reminding them, like in verse 14, that the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. So let's read the whole chapter together, and then we'll have another brief word of prayer and ask God's blessing on his word. Let's read chapter 94. I'll be reading from the ESV. You can follow along with me. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evil evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's very tempting to read some of these verses simply in light of 
our own experience right now in 2021, Lord, but we need to understand as well that there's a whole group of people that experience this in a, a very different way. So give us your eyes, Lord, as you have given. Lord, give us your ears as you have planted that we might hear what you really want from us, for us to get from this, Lord, that we might gain knowledge and understanding, Lord, and if we fail to get that, if we still are seeking wisdom, Lord, help us to come to you in this way and to ask for it, knowing that you're faithful to give, not so that we might boast, Lord, but so that we might see and know and love you better. In Jesus' name we pray this morning, amen. So look at verse 1. I mean, right off the bat, you can kind of tell there's, there's, I'm not going to say that there's anger here, but there's certainly anguish. The author is saying, Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. So notice something that the author just gets straight to the point in the psalm. He doesn't always in every psalm, but in this one he does. He just says, God, go get them. The bad guys, you see what they're doing. Repay them. Go get them. And the author knows who God is. If you're familiar with some of the other Old Testament passages and books, you might remember in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says, vengeance is mine. Remember, declares the Lord, I will vindicate my people. Jeremiah 51 verse 56 says that the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. The author knew who God was. Now, think about the last time that you were wronged. Somebody hurt you. Somebody mistreated you. Somebody said something to you that really just stuck with you and hurt. Think about how you felt in that moment. What was your first inclination? Well, if you're like most of us, you probably wanted to do the same thing that they did to you back to them. And we see this, you see this with kids. One kid hits another kid. What does that kid generally almost immediately do? Well, he hits them back. Well, parents, we know that doesn't, that doesn't work. There has to be something else. Now, I, I will say, in a situation like that, there's some amount of justice that's playing out at least in that kid's mind, well, he did it to me, so I'm going to repay. So there's some amount of justice, but we need certainly to teach our kids to understand the difference between justice and revenge. Samuel Johnson, in 1775, put out really the first uh, and biggest dictionary. I don't know if he was a believer or not, but he helps us understand this better. He makes the distinction. He says, revenge is an act of passion, but vengeance is an act of justice. Okay, and so the author uses that word vengeance here in verse 1 a couple of times. He's not taking this on himself. He's not going after the evildoers to do what they did to him back on them. He's calling out to God. Because he knows that God is a God of vengeance, that it's up to him to avenge. And so this is why it's best up to the Lord, because we oftentimes find it extremely difficult to react in justice rather than just revenge. Most of us, that's our natural inclination, is to just pay them back ourselves. God says, no, that's my job. Leave it up to me. 
psalmist understood that. It doesn't belong to a man. So he understood also that if it doesn't belong to any man, no person, then it could only belong to someone who sees more than he could see and knows more than he can know. And that's true for us today. When we've been wronged, do we trust that God knows more than we know and sees more than we see? And can we trust him with it? I hope that we can. This played itself out in the author's life by asking and trusting God to dispense proper justice according to his higher knowledge and his superior timing. And so in verse 2, when he says, repay to the proud what they deserve, he means the same thing that the author of Lamentation means in 3 verse 64 when he says, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. That's what it says in Lamentations 3.64. I don't think that's spiteful revenge on the author's part. I think that's real justice because it comes from an impartial and a perfect God. And so you can say, according, repay them according to the work of their hands. And believe it or not, that's the same kind of justice system that God has in mind for our world. God's system of justice is the same kind of system of justice that he has for our, for people now. So if you think about Romans 13, Paul talks about a sword there that's wielded by authority. But it's not vindictive people who have authority that they just punish others for not listening to them. That's not the kind of authority that Romans 13 is advocating. The sword that is given to them by God is for them to dispense godly, biblical, true, right justice on someone who's actually deserving of justice because they've done wrong. So the one who wields this sword, Paul says, when they do it well and right, it says actually does it for your good, brothers and sisters. God gives you authority for your good, believe it or not. What I think, though, is being misunderstood today is who determines what the good is. It's always God who determines what good is because he's the only one who's always good. You're not always good. I'm not always good. So we can't set that standard and then enforce it on other people. God has to set the standard. He's the only one who's always good, and he's the only one who can define what good is. And so therefore, those in authority must submit to God's definition of what is good in order to properly exercise right and biblical truth and justice. You can't read Scripture, even Psalm 94, and come away with any other conclusion but that God loves righteous justice. God is a God of justice. I shouldn't have to add the word righteous justice to that kind of a definition because injustice, unjust justice is an oxymoron. It, it doesn't make sense. Certainly not the kind of justice that the Bible teaches. And yet I probably do have to add that in today. Now understand, again, we're not talking about revenge at all here. We're talking about biblical justice, which God deals out according to his own good design and in his own time. And when earthly authorities aim to dispense justice according to what God says is good and right and true, then God in Romans 13 and in other places calls Christians to submit to that kind of authority. 
We're called to submit to godly authority. So verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 94 are the author's request for God to do that, to dispense right justice and judgment on the wicked. And then verses 4 through 7 kind of explain why the author's saying, God, here's why you need to, to deal out some justice here. So the reasons why he calls God to rise up. He says, rise up and judge these people. Just look at some of the things that he says that they do. They pour out arrogant words. They're boastful. They crush and afflict God's people. They kill the widow. They kill the traveler. They murder the orphan. All the people that in God's justice, he calls those in authority to protect these people were killing, were mistreating, were pushing down. And they do all of it on a false premise. It's found in verse 7. What's the false premise? They believe that God doesn't see them. It says, the Lord doesn't see. This is what they're saying. The God of Jacob doesn't perceive. Isn't this the prevalent attitude of our day now as well? Even even some of us who, who know the love of Christ and have been changed by His grace still fall into this. And we know a sin is wrong and we step into it because we momentarily think, I can hide this from God. And we act just like the wicked people here and we say, God doesn't see it. He doesn't, he doesn't understand it. He doesn't perceive it. And we have... Millions of people walking around each day living like they believe that God is blind to their sin. If they believe that God exists at all, many of them believe that He can't see. And they're so deceived that they commit horrific crimes against their brothers and sisters, against humanity, and they just think nothing of it. They think they're getting away with it. That God's not going to repay them. That justice is dead, that God may be powerless to do anything. But the psalmist teaches us in verses 8 through 11, he teaches us, and there's a comparison here that I want to show you. It's in your notes. It's here on the screen too. It it compares the wicked person and God. Look at at the differences here. I I just laugh when I see this. But the wicked person, he says, is, is dull, says that they're fools, And he says that their thoughts are futile. But then look at what he says about God. God hears because he planted the ear. God does see because he formed the eye. He rebukes because he is the only righteous judge and he knows who men really are. There's a vast chasm between these two things. That the author is, I think, making pretty clear. And even though it might appear to him and maybe to us still that God doesn't see, maybe we think God doesn't hear, maybe we think that the wicked are prospering and getting away with it. This is the truth. God knows, God hears, he sees, he does rebuke, and he will judge. The ways of the wicked may look like they're prospering while the righteous suffer, but it won't always be that way. God loves justice and he'll dispense it in his own way, in his own time. And that should, to some degree, cause fear in the hearts of men. To know that God sees everything 
and that he's going to judge everything should cause us to fear him, (laughs) shouldn't it? It sounds a little bit like Lamentations 3 again. Let me just read. You can turn there if you want. Lamentations 3, verse 57 and following. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You've seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. And then the verses I really want to point out. Lamentations 3.64. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of your hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be upon them. That sounds a little like verse 8 of Psalm 94. Lamentations 3.66. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. God's justice is coming. And the reality of it should cause us to fear Him. But not just to fear Him. To obey Him. Not just to obey Him. The reality of God's judgment should cause us to love Him. And I think that's what verses 12 through 19 of Psalm 94 get at. I think they tell us this. I think these are some of the most comforting and reassuring verses for Christians. They're priceless for us. It's true that God disciplines. Remember, Hebrews chapter 12, He only disciplines those whom He loves. So the, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Try saying that to your kids, parents, next time. Hey, you're blessed because of this discipline. But in reality, that's true. That's not what they're going to want to hear, but that's true. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. In fact, look at verses 12 through 19. I'm just going to read off. These are in your notes too, but I just want to look at all the ways that a righteous man or a righteous woman is blessed. 12a, God disciplines him. 12b, God teaches him. Verse 13, God gives him a time of rest. Verse 14, God never forsakes him. Verse 15, God judges him in righteousness, rightly. Verse 16 and 17, God helps him against evildoers. Verse 18, God upholds him when he's in danger of falling. And then verse 19, God comforts and cheers his soul. Verse 18, I think, should be particularly comforting to the Christian. He says, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. I bet that you could think back on this week, certainly maybe the last two weeks, and remember a time when you could have really heard that and be blessed by it. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. We walk around with a heart full of cares, right? I won't pretend to know the solution for every one of those cares. But certainly I direct you back to verse 18. His consolations cheer our souls. Think about it. Eternal love providential covenant love from God to his people, sovereign wisdom where all things happen according to his plan, unfailing promises that have come from the beginning of humankind, completed redemption on the cross, a risen savior being united with Christ and his people, 
full future glory that's coming for all those who know Jesus, how can we think on those kinds of things and our heart not stir with joy? Most everything we experience in life, when compared to just that short list that I mentioned, can't hold a candle to what God has done for us in Christ. That's true for all of eternity. The thing that's bothering you right now may be true for a little while. In fact, it may be true for the rest of your life. But it's not true for all of eternity. But the promises of God, the truth that He has brought through Christ, is true for all of eternity. So anything we experience now pales in comparison. And it sounds a lot like, like what James says in his book about suffering Verse 20, 21, 22, 23, these verses show again God's covering over his people. Verse 20 and 21, they kind of set up the destruction of the wicked. They explain again in the ways in which they are evil. He says, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Can they be aligned with God? There can't be. There can't be fellowship between darkness and light, between good and evil. You can't say that you're for godliness and truth and then rule or legislate sin. Those, those things don't mesh. They don't jive. They don't work. It doesn't make sense. And, brothers and sisters, we can be assured that God won't stand for it forever. Now, the psalmist also accuses these wicked people of framing injustice by statute when those in authority, they carry out their wicked purposes under the disguise of law, it gives evidence to the fact that they aren't really aligned with God. Because they can't be. They can't be according to Scripture. First John 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this doesn't only apply to people in authority. Every person who claims to know God ought to live this way. If you say you are walking in the light and you are continuing to walk in darkness, you lie not only to the world around you, but you lie to yourself. The King James Version says throne of iniquity. I think that's kind of fun and interesting. It, It just means wickedness in high places, places of authority. These people who were supposed to love and be dedicated to justice and truth. Instead, it says in verse 21 that they band together against the righteous and the innocent. The people that they're supposed to protect, they come together against them. An old biblical scholar in 1875, Alexander McLaren, he says, the height of crime is reached when rulers use the forms of justice as masks for injustice and give legal legal sanction to mischief. The ancient world groaned under such travesties of the sanctity of law, and the modern world is not free from them still. And that was hundreds of years ago. Look at verse 22. This verse, I think, explains the covering of the righteous, the redemption for God's people. He says, But the Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. You know what this, I think, means with the previous verses coming right before it? No matter what the lawmakers do, God is the rock of refuge for the Christian. Brothers and sisters, believe it or not, 
Christianity has suffered a lot longer than in the 2000s. God's people have endured oppressive rulers far more oppressive than what we're experiencing now. That's not to say it's right or okay, but it may not be the end of what we experience. Can we read verse 22 and be convinced of this truth? That God is my rock of refuge. Now, to some degree, our lives are changed by laws that are passed. But if the Lord is our defense, and if he is our rock, then nothing can shake us. Nothing can move us. In him, Charles Spurgeon says, even in him alone, we find safety. Let the world rage as it may. We ask not aid from man, but are content to flee into the embrace of an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Let the world rage. We are content to run to the rock of refuge as Christians. And as Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 said last week, it's better to take refuge in the Lord and to trust in man. And it says it's better to take refuge in the Lord and to trust in princes. Back to verse 33, I'm sorry, 23 in Psalm 94. This verse just kind of clarifies why Christians don't need to fear men. Why they don't need to fear men and why they can truly put their, put their trace, trust in God alone and not in man. He says, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This reminded me, and maybe it reminds you as we read it, of another biblical principle. A man reaps what he sows, right? This is from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 10. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season... We will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, listen to this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what Paul says in regards to reaping and sowing. And so Psalm 94 verse 23 literally means that the wicked will have their wickedness brought back onto them. They're going to be wiped out because of it. Last week in Psalm 118, the the psalmist used the term cut off. If you remember, he says, I cut them off several times. Just means they were destroyed. It helps us understand this truth again. You reap what you sow. The unjust standards of measure that they used to oppress other people was then going to be turned around and used on them and it would destroy them. God is going to wipe them out. But it's not an unjust thing. It's not a it's not a spiteful thing. God's not laughing at their demise necessarily. But in righteousness, in truth, their own wickedness was going to be their demise. And God's judgment would be fitting and it would be righteous. Their doom would be connected to their own iniquity and their own wickedness. And the punishment would fit the crime. And those who had cut others off would they themselves be cut off? And this was the psalmist's confidence. The repetition of the phrase, cut them off, emphasizes this idea. Notice also, back verse 1, 23 and verse 1, it lines up with what the psalmist has already said about vengeance. 
So the psalm begins with trusting God to set things right and ends with the same kind of confidence. Christians, even as I'm sharing today, I can tell, I expect in your hearts that you're longing for the day when God sets all of this wickedness right. When all of the injustices of the world, true injustices of the world, are fixed. When wickedness is genuinely judged and when God's righteousness reigns. We long for that day, don't we? Paul talks about it as almost like this groaning within us. All of creation groans that same way too. But you know what? We long for that day and we're confident in that day. Not because we have outperformed other people. And so we've got a a higher standing than they do. We're not confident in that day just because we've paid our dues and we've experienced hardships, though Jesus says we will. We're not even confident in the day of judgment just because God likes us better. Christians are confident in the day of judgment because, as Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, God has made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how we stand in confidence on the day of judgment because Christ has become our sin in our place. God has every reason to do to the wicked people that what this chapter describes. God has every reason to do that for me and you. To bring back on us our iniquity, to wipe us out for our wickedness. Guys, we, that's what we deserve. But that's not what we get because of Christ. He has made a way for sinners like me and like you to be made right with him through Christ. It's no other way than that, than putting your full faith and your full trust in him and in him alone. And you can do that today. Christian, if you have done that, if you put your faith in in Christ, but you still long for the day when justice will be poured out, if you still long for the day when your own sin isn't wrapping you up and keeping you down, take heart. Look back at verse 18. I keep saying 18, but it's really 19. I'm sorry. had it wrong in all of my notes. 19. Thank you, Monroe. Read verse 19 with me. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. I hope that your soul is comforted by these words this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we're confident and we can say with certainty, Lord, bring your justice down. Lord, it's not because we're perfect and it's not because we've just done all the right steps and checked all the right boxes. Lord, it's, it's simply because you've granted faith and repentance. And Lord, we've just believed your promises. So Lord, if there's someone listening this morning, it's never believed that, that they have not truly trusted in you. Lord, this isn't just a this isn't just a formula that they get to say a prayer and have all of their problems fixed, Lord. That's not what a relationship with you means. Lord, but it does mean that they're saved eternally. It does mean that they're comfort in the, comforted in this life when the cares of their hearts are many and weighing down on them. Lord, it does mean that you are with them. And that you will never forsake them. You won't 
turn your back on your heritage. Lord, you care for them and you always will. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would see your comfort today, desire it, recognize our need for it, Lord, and that we would run after you. That if we've never put our full faith in you, Lord, that we would stop right now, bow our hearts as it were, and give them to you so that you might take them and you might use them for your glory here on earth and for eternity, Lord. That's what we're here for. And so, Lord, I I pray that our hearts would be turned to you this morning. Lord, and throughout this week, and as we've just celebrated the time of thanksgiving, Lord, may our thanks be because of Christ and what he has done. We thank you for him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.